0: Good morning, it's wonderful to join you today on this Tri-Church Sunday. And um, Jago asked me a little while ago to come and um, share a message on this theme of, is Christianity out of date? And I think there's a lot that could be said in response to that, because of course, it's certainly very old. Jesus' birth, death and resurrection occurring over 2,000 years ago. But as we've realised, I think, afresh this week, longevity, faithfulness, service, truth, an evidence, basis, or a track record really do matter to us. The Queen famously said of Jesus in one of, of her Christmas broadcasts, for me, the life of Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, whose birth we celebrate today, is an inspiration and an anchor in my life, a role model of reconciliation and forgiveness. He stretched out his hands in love, acceptance, and healing. On another occasion, the Queen said this, "'For me, the teachings of Christ "'and my own personal accountability before God "'provide a framework in which I try to lead my life. "'I, like so many of you, Have drawn comfort in difficult times from Christ's word and example. So I want to explore together this morning a few thoughts about why the Christian faith might not be irrelevant and out of date for us, as well as for Her Majesty the Queen. And Jesus um, speaks into or spoke into the deepest needs and questions of the day. And I believe that he still does that. And I want to explore two of those deepest questions of our day and how he speaks and meets us in those questions. And the first is this. In the Western world, our increasing affluence has led to a sense of emptiness. For a generation, we've been told, verbally, -verbally, non-verbally, through writings, through the systems of our culture, that having more materially will make us happier. But I want to ask the question this morning, does the evidence support that? Michael Norton, a Harvard Business School professor, studies the connection between happiness and wealth. And he did a study in which he asked more than 2,000 people who had a net worth of more than $1 million and many whose wealth far exceeded that threshold. He asked them on a scale of 1 to 10 how happy they were and how much more money they would need to get to a ten. And he wrote all the way up the income-wealth spectrum, beginning at 1 million US dollars. Basically, everyone said, wherever they were on that spectrum, that they needed two to three times as much as they already had in order to be happy. Robert Skidelsky wrote, experience has taught us that material wants no natural bounds. They will expand without end unless we consciously restrain them. He says capitalism rests precisely on this endless expansion of want. And that is why for all its success, it remains so unloved. It's given us wealth beyond measure, but it's taken away the chief benefit of wealth, the consciousness of having enough. Is there such a thing... As feeling that you have enough, Jesus Christ put it like this in Mark's Gospel. He asked the question, "What does it profit a person to gain the whole world but lose his soul?" That Greek word there um, could be translated, or is psychen. It's the original meaning of breath, the sign of life. And it embraces not just the breath of life, but also the soul, that kind of immortal part of a person, distinguished just from our body. And it also embraced the idea of our minds and understanding and thoughts. In other words, Jesus is saying, what is at stake is your whole sense of well-being as a person that goes to the deepest innate truth of who you are, the you that makes you you. That is what Jesus Christ claims to be able to meet the you that makes you, you. Oliver James, in his book, Affluenza, found that when we center our lives on money, possessions, and personal experience, we actually suffer increased levels of depression, anxiety, and relationship breakdown. He found the more materialistic we are, the less loyal, helpful, and joyful we become. He described affluenza as a virus-like condition that spreads through affluent countries. And in these countries, people define themselves by how much they make. And he says, by far the most significant consequence of selfish capitalism has been a startling increase in the incident of mental illness in both children and adults since the 1970s. I suggest this morning that we need a bigger category, a bigger worldview, which can hold us as human beings, the you that makes you, you, your soul. A way of seeing the world within which we can find a place as human beings that doesn't diminish us, it doesn't reduce us to the goods we can produce or consume, but it's also realistic about our selfishness, our fallenness, our brokenness. Not just that innate soul and goodness and potential of human life, but the brokenness and our need for the transformation of the human heart. And the Christian faith offers just such a possibility. Jesus Christ, who asked that question, what does it profit a person to gain the whole world but lose their soul, also went on to claim to be the one who could meet our deepest need as human beings. He made statements like this. He said, I am the bread of life. Anyone who comes to me will never be hungry again. Jesus specifically offers us the possibility of not experiencing just emptiness for the rest of our lives and i have found personally that meeting him that that is a true offer but i want to quickly tell you of my friend a, a man called tom torrents who was born and raised in mobile alabama during the years of racial segregation And he bitterly opposed the move towards racial equality in the 1960s in the US and he particularly directed his hatred towards Jewish people who he believed were involved in a communist plot against America and he saw them as enemies. As a young man in his early 20s, Tom Terrence aligned himself with a person called Sam Bowers, a man who was later convicted of three murders of civil rights workers in Philadelphia, Mississippi. And Terrence became a member of the Ku Klux Klan, a violent right-wing terrorist group. As an operative... And for the White Knights, he was involved in some thirty bombings of synagogues, churches, and homes before he was apprehended by the FBI in a sting operation in Meridian, Mississippi. In the shootout um, that went went along with this um, apprehension, he was shot nineteen times. But after his recovery, he began a 30 year sentence, prison sentence in the Mississippi State Penitentiary, one of the most volatile prisons of America at that time. But he escaped, he recruited others to join his organization and he escaped. And shortly afterwards, he was apprehended again in another shootout and this time he was placed in a high security prison. In prison he was only allowed for leisure to read and so he requested from the prison library different books and one day he requested Mein Kampf and he read it in a day and then at some point he requested that a bible be sent to his cell and he picked up and he began to read the bible and he read these words, the question that Jesus asked that I've read to you this morning What does it profit a person if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? And alone in his cell, Tom Terrence turned to Jesus Christ. He renounced his racism and hatred and committed his life to Christ and the service of humanity. Whilst in prison, he started a prayer meeting with one of the leaders of the Black Panthers, who was also a new Christian. And when Edgar Hoover heard of this, he thought it was a jailhouse conversion, a ploy to get his prison sentence reduced. So he sent the FBI agent who'd been involved in tracking Terrence and capturing him both the first and the second time. And this man was highly cynical. He did not believe it. But when he walked into the interrogation room to interview Tom Terrence, he was stunned by the change he saw. And as a result of what he experienced, he too became a Christian. Terence then devoted his life to working for civil rights in America. Jesus Christ speaks to our emptiness, offering us life beyond what material acquisition can offer. I suggest that's highly relevant to us today, this morning. Secondly, Jesus Christ speaks into our anxiety, our trauma, and our crisis. Is Christianity out of date? Well, I'd love to look at this um, parable that we saw in, in Luke's gospel that we had read to us, one of the most famous stories that Jesus told, the parable of the Good Samaritan, this story is commonly understood as a sort of example story, um, offering us an example of what it means to be a good neighbor. And it's used by politicians as such. Hillary Clinton, in her book, It Takes a Village, called the Parable, an example of compassion towards people of different backgrounds. George W. Bush reasoned that the work of compassion was the work of a nation, not just a government. And he pledged that America would not pass by on the other side. Barack Obama, in a speech about fighting human trafficking, spoke of being like that good Samaritan on the road to Jericho. We're not going to just pass by indifferent. We've got to be moved by compassion. We've got to bind up the wounds. Perhaps marginally less eloquently, Gordon Brown, Prime Minister during the 2007 and 8 financial crisis, used the good Samaritan as a pretext for his economic theory of global Keynesianism. And he argued, in a crisis, what the British people want to know is that their government will not pass by on the other side. And on the right of politics, it was Margaret Thatcher who said, no one would remember the good Samaritan if he'd only had good intentions, he had money as well. Let's take a step back for a moment from our conceptions about this story and what the politicians say about it. Jesus actually told this story about the Samaritan in the midst of a conversation with someone who was asking about eternal life. What would it mean to have eternal life? What would it look like to experience eternal life? And he tells this story of the man on the way to Jericho and um, the Levite passes by he's been beaten up and left on the side of the road the Levite passes by and the priest passes by and then this Samaritan so Jesus told this story as a parable so we're meant to imagine ourselves somewhere in it who are you and I in the story No one wants to be the priest, the religious person who doesn't want to bother with a dying man who might inconvenience him and who passes by. No one wants to be the Levite, the lawyer whose status and position would be personally and professionally compromised by getting involved with someone in distress, in trauma, wounded and injured by the side of the road. But of Jesus' original hearers, no one wanted to be a Samaritan either. A Samaritan was a kind of hated class and race of outsider, always typecast culturally in any story or joke as the villain, an unlikely source of compassion to the original hearers. But here's the kicker in Jesus' story, in Jesus' telling of this story, you and I are not the Samaritan who gives beyond compassion, who binds up the man's wounds. You and I are the betrayed, kicked, abused, attacked, victim, left for dead. We are the man dying on the side of the road. We are the person in need of compassion, in need of healing, in need of safety in need of kindness and contact and generosity and love. When hard and devastating things happen to us in life that affluence cannot protect us from, it can shake us to the very core of our being. And that is especially true if we've thought of faith as protecting us in some way on a sort of relentlessly upbeat path to success. But Jesus Christ, when he's talking to someone who's asking what it might mean to have eternal life, this is how he envisages our situation, our human condition. He's saying, living life As a human being, can feel a bit like being beaten up and left on the road, on the side of the road to die. And Jesus is saying that a loving God actually exists. And that loving God, our Heavenly Father, doesn't ignore or sanitize or gloss over or avoid our pain, our anxiety, our distress, and our need. Because it is into this suffering world that you and I experience that Jesus Christ came. So, who is it that can experience eternal life? Jesus is saying a person who can have eternal life is someone who knows what it is to suffer, to be traumatized, to be betrayed, to be oppressed, to be left kicked half to death, dying on the side of the road, to be abandoned or to feel abandoned in a time of need. A person who can have eternal life is a person who might feel sad or disappointed or anxious or be struggling with mental health or PTSD or complex PTSD, a person who is stressed and in need. Jesus does not require us to become a religious do-gooder, He says God can meet us when bad and sad and random things that hurt and devastate us happen. Who are you and I in the story? We're the man on the side of the road. In the earliest centuries of the church, the early church fathers knew this, that we are the beaten man and that God himself, Jesus, is the good Samaritan. Irenaeus in the second century Augustine in the fourth used this story to explain what it might feel like and be like to come to know God in a traumatized world and we're living in a moment aren't we when trauma is at play as a backdrop for our culture and more generally mental health and trauma are present for many of us to varying degrees. Perhaps here this morning you're a trauma survivor or anxiety sufferer. Perhaps you support someone else who goes through these things. And Jesus speaks to us today in our current and real situation. Think about what the good Samaritan does. He sees the man. Jesus is saying that coming to know God... Is to be seen. But what else does the good Samaritan do? He has compassion for the man. He's moved by the specific situation of the person who's suffering. And then Jesus says that the Good Samaritan went up to him. He comes close to people who are suffering, bringing his presence. Jesus is saying that coming to know God is not about, you know, believing a certain set of ideas. There's a real and living and personal God who meets us in this world. He comes close to him, who went up to him. And then the Good Samaritan bandages the person's wounds. He tends specifically to the type of wounds we've endured. And he doesn't outsource it to an institution. He doesn't get someone else to deal with the problem. He personally tends to the wounds of the man on the side of the road. And then what does he do? He says he lifts the man up. This is what Jesus does for us if we come to know him. He lifts us. He doesn't leave us rotting by the side of the road in bondage to the things that are ruining ruining our lives and relationships. He lifts us up and out. And then the good Samaritan carries the man to a place of safety to take care of him. And he leaves provision for him until his return. This is who Jesus is for you and me. His offer and his love are never out of date. Coming to know God is a bit like meeting the Good Samaritan, says Jesus. Receiving that ministry of the Good Samaritan, Jesus is saying this is what God is like. And Jesus told this story, and having told it, he would go on to die by crucifixion, enduring trauma and shame, pain, violence, and judgment, all for the love of us, all so that we can be rescued. Jesus is saying life is not hopeless. There is a good Samaritan for you and for me. So this morning, as you sit in this beautiful church, Whether you're thinking through the emptiness that so often accompanies affluence, what does it profit a person to gain the world and lose their soul? Jesus Christ speaks into that human ache and emptiness, offering Himself as the bread of life. What could be more relevant? Or perhaps you're aware of trauma and crisis and anxiety for yourself or someone you love. And this morning, Jesus, as the good Samaritan, personally offers you love, meaning rescue and life today. And for over 2,000 years, people who have been searching for those things have found them in him have found that deepest answer to the emptiness of the human heart and have found in relationship with him, rescue in the brokenness of this world, forgiveness for our sins, but rescue to be lifted by the Good Samaritan. There's an offer of an eternal relationship with Jesus he says later on in the Bible I stand at the door and knock anyone who opens the door I will come in and eat with him and he with me I wonder if you'd like to open that door to him today perhaps you've got questions you need to explore them through the alpha course but if you would like to open that door to him today, we're going to say a short prayer now as I close. So I just invite you to close your eyes for a moment. And um, I'm just going to pray. And if you'd like to open that door to Jesus, the good Samaritan, the one who offers that rescue, and that fullness of life. Why don't you do that and echo this prayer in your own heart? God, thank you for my life. Thank you for all the good things in this world. I'm sorry for the mess I find myself in. Please will you forgive me through your cross, rescue me today and come into my life. Amen.